Uh, so I'm reading 1 Samuel chapter 24, and it's on page 307. So I'll be reading the whole chapter. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. <coughs> he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just, just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So I'm reading Mark, chapter 8, starting from verse 27, can be found on uh, 1055 on the Church Bibles. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, 
Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days raise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I wonder if you ever asked the question, why does it have to be so hard? Why does life have to be so long? Why does it have to be so difficult? Maybe you haven't asked that yet, but I think the time will come. Especially if you're someone who, as we saw last week, loves God's king who's friends with God's king, is submitted to God's king and loves him more than anyone else. Surely if you're one of his people, it wouldn't have to be so difficult. I reckon David would have asked that question in these chapters. It couldn't be clearer at this point in 1 Samuel that David is God's chosen king. Uh, God's declared it, he's been anointed, and David's been going around saving God's people from their enemies, from Goliath, some great battles, and in chapter 23 he saves a whole town here. And people start recognising him as God's king. We saw last week that Jonathan gives him his royal robe. In chapter 21 here, Goliath's hometown called Gath, they refer to David as the king. And we just read in chapter 24, King Saul, who hates him, admits that one day he will be king. It couldn't be clearer that David is God's king. So why is he not king yet? Why does it take so long? At chapter 16, he gets anointed as king. By the end of the book, chapter 31, he's still not king. 2 Samuel 5, finally he's king in Jerusalem. This week I wondered to myself, I wonder how long that took. You know, the Bible doesn't sort of give you years in each chapter as you go along. How long was that between anointed as a boy and finally on the throne? So I looked it up, Googled it. 32 years. Can you get that? 32 years of waiting. I mean, sometimes they talk about politicians being in the wilderness and they're waiting to get back as prime minister when we're talking about four years or something. 32 years he is waiting. And it's no walk in the park, is it, for David? It's not just the time, but the suffering. We saw last week that King Saul, just in those chapters, is plotting to kill David nine times. In these chapters, is just one long, continuous, relentless pursuit. He gets 3,000 crack troops and he pursues David. And so David's on the run. He's living in a cave, chapter 22. He has to flee as a refugee to other nations. He's constantly one step away from death. And not just David, but his followers as well. In chapter 22, Saul the tyrant slaughters 85 priests because one of them supported David. 
It couldn't be clearer that David is God's chosen king. And so why does he have to wait so long? And why does he have to suffer? Well, it's the same question for God's greatest king, wasn't it? He's declared as God's king at his birth and his baptism. Jesus saved people from their enemies of demons and death and disease. And so Peter recognized him. You are the Christ, God's king. So why is he not king yet? Why at that point that does Jesus immediately say, I've got to suffer? Well, if you flick over your outline, you'll see a passage there from Luke 24. Those, there's two disciples walking to a town called Emmaus and they're downcast and confused. And they say to the person who's walking with them, this guy Jesus, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. So we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped, but clearly not anymore. He's dead Why would God's king have to suffer and die? And what did Jesus say to them? For it was Jesus who was talking to them. How slow of heart you are. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Did not God's king have to suffer? That's what had to happen, says Jesus, and you should have known it. In fact, you did know it, Jesus says in verse 25, but you were just slow of heart to believe it. You didn't want to believe it. Where was it in the scriptures? What is the memory verse that they're supposed to remember at this point that says God's king must suffer? Well, it's not really a memory verse, I think, as you read the Old Testament. What's the part of the Bible that Jesus is referring to where God's king must suffer? I reckon it's these chapters tonight. 1 Samuel 21 to 26, he's clearly God's king and he must suffer before he enters into his glory why does david have to wander around for 32 years waiting for his kingdom and suffering well there's a whole lot of reasons it's good for his character it gets him ready to be on the throne you could make all those sorts of arguments so the bible doesn't really point it out i think the main thing he's pointing forward to jesus god's king must wait and must suffer what about us? It couldn't be clearer, could it? If you, if you trust in Jesus, if you love Jesus as a friend, you submit to him and you're loyal to him, then you're saved by him and you're part of his kingdom. So why doesn't God just beam us up, Scotty, to the kingdom? Why don't we just zip straight there through hyperspace or something? Why all this waiting why are we suffering because if god's king suffered then we must suffer if they hate me they will hate you also 1 peter 4 we share in the sufferings of god's king if you follow a crucified king of course you expect 
to suffer. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us here tonight sort of know that. If we get asked a question, do you expect as a Christian, are you promised to prosper? Will you always be healthy, wealthy and wise? I'm pretty confident if you're here regularly at church, you know that's not true. And I'm glad about that. But we know that in our heads, but we struggle to believe that, don't we? Why is it that when I get a cold, that after two days, I think the cold's being rather rude and it was time to leave by now? Because I think I have a right to be healthy. Is that how you feel when you get sick? Why is it that when, as our society is changing and doesn't like Christians as much as it used to, we feel like the society's being pulled out from us and it's not fair and we resent it as if this society belongs to us, don't you know? What does that show about what we expect? We actually expect not to suffer. And we need to believe what this says. God's king must suffer and we must suffer. What about when people say God's got a wonderful plan for your life? You just have to find out the plan, or even if you don't find it out, it'll be wonderful anyway. Is that true? Well, if you think suffering is wonderful, sure. But actually, God's plan for his people is that we suffer. And we need to believe that. Otherwise, we're not going to survive as God's people. Let's pray just about that. Heavenly Father, we do find it strange that David had to wait so long and that he had to suffer so much. Help us to see that that's what it was like for Jesus. He was here on earth suffering and he had to wait and he had to suffer to pay for our sins. Father, we know in our heads that we're expecting to suffer the normal sufferings of life and persecution as well. But it seems pretty clear that actually we don't expect it. And we get surprised and disappointed and we feel ripped off when we suffer. So Father, please help us to truly believe it. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, praise and honour unto you. For you went on that rugged cross, as it had been proclaimed, God's King must suffer. Help us now as we consider how to respond to suffering, how we might trust God like you did. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. God's king must suffer, so the people of God's king must suffer. But how should we respond to suffering, especially when it's unjust, especially when it's because we belong to God's king, or just that people treat us badly? Maybe David can show us how. Well, the first thing I want to say is that he doesn't that David does badly in these chapters. Have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, Front and centre here. 
as he's being pursued by uh, Saul, he lies. Chapter 21, verse 1. He goes to a priest, and the priest is scared because he knows the antagonism between them. And so he says, why are you alone? Why is no one with you, David? And David, who's being pursued by Saul, Saul's trying to kill him, says, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. True or false? Clearly, it's a bald-faced lie, isn't it? To God's priest. But I take it David doesn't trust God enough at this point and feels he has to lie. Halfway through the chapter, verse 10, uh, David is so desperate that he has to go to another country, to Gath. You might not have heard of Gath. It's not high on the um, travel itinerary these days, but it's one of the five towns of the Philistines, the enemies. And you might have possibly have heard of Gath because they had a rather famous son who happened to be rather tall, do you remember? Goliath. And David is the guy who destroyed their most favourite son. And David thinks it's a really good idea to go hide there for a while. He'll be safe. Smart? No, completely foolish. And when they realise, they recognise who he is, what does he do? Well, he turns to deception again. He pretends to be insane. He acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. I don't think we're supposed to think at this point, be like David. I don't think he trusts God here. And he's not truthful. It gets worse. Turn over to chapter 25. Chapter 25, whilst he's living in a cave in the wilderness, keeping away from Saul, he decides uh, that he will protect the flocks of a certain local landowner, a rich man called Nabal, whose name means fool. And so he's hoping, I think, that Nabal, when the time comes, will give him a share of the flocks, of, of the produce. And so he sends a message. I've been looking after your flocks. Please help me out. And Nabal, the fool, refuses to help God's king and his people. And David is, is furious. What have I been wasting my time for protecting this man's goods? And his anger is justified. Anger is the right response at that moment. But what does he do with his anger? Does he turn the other cheek or trust God? Does he remember that God's king must suffer and God will provide for him? No. He sets out to kill Nabal. With all his men, he goes out to kill Nabal and everyone who works for Nabal. And the Lord has to stop him through Nabal's wife who intervenes with some quick thinking. And Saul at that, David at that point doesn't look much different to King Saul, I reckon. How does David respond to suffering and injustice? It's not all good. 
But he does learn in this period, I think, to trust God. He writes a number of psalms, I think quite a lot probably in this period, but there's five psalms that actually say they're from this period. In the title of the psalm, it tells you where it was written and what was happening. Psalm 34, 52, 56, 57, 142. And each one, he cries out to God for help, trusts in God and God delivers him and he calls on other people to trust God as well. He shines in those psalms. But at chapter 24, he really shines, the passage we read before, doesn't he? He shows us here how to respond to suffering, how to trust God. Chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David. He came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. That's extraordinary, isn't it? It's not extraordinary because we learn here that kings too need to go to the toilet or that he has to go in a cave. That's the only place to go. The extraordinary thing is that he happens to pick the cave, and there are a lot of caves in the Middle East, especially in the desert. He happens to pick the cave where David and his men were hiding. He hasn't been able to find David for years. And yet by going to the toilet, he finds him. And David is there. And David's men think this is a extraordinary and clearly a gift from God. They think this is a no-brainer of what to do now. Verse 4, the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Who could argue with that? It's extraordinary. The chances like a million to one of this happening. It must be from God. Clearly it is. All things are from God. This is a God incidence. And clearly the men say, we know what God wants you to do, O David. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish except that God didn't actually say that as far as we know there's no record of God saying one day David I'm going to give Saul into your hands and you can chop him up however you like God's never said that they make that up I think as if to say here is the God stamp go and do it You see, here is an open door. And as Christians, we often talk about open doors, that if God has brought things together in a surprising, extraordinary way, then clearly God wants you to walk through the open door. This is guidance from God. Why else would it have happened? Why else would have God brought King Saul into a cave on his own to go to the toilet in the cave you were in? Obviously, O king, you're supposed to kill him. But is that true? Is it true that if something happens and it's an open door that you can walk through, then clearly 
God wants you to do it. You know, you get a job offer, which is your dream job offer. You get into a course, which so many other people are trying to get into. Is an open door a door you should walk through? Let's see what David says. Let's see what he does, rather. Verse 4. Then David crept up unnoticed and... We've already read the story, so you know, but there is a suspense there, isn't there? Do you see? What is he going to do to the king? This is the moment, the turning point. But what does he do? He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. That's it. What a letdown. Why? Verse 6. Why does he not walk through this open door? He said to his men, verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed Or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David sees the open door, the opportunity to end his waiting and to suffer no more and to take the throne. He sees the opportunity, but he sees that it's wrong. For he thinks no matter how bad the Lord's anointed is, you are not to take your hand against him. He is the king, the chosen of the Lord. He's been rejected by God, but he is still on the throne and God will destroy him at the appropriate time. The situation here where he has the opportunity to kill the Lord's anointed is not one that will come to us every day, is it? It's not one we can relate to, but can you relate to the open door situation? Can you see that just because a door is open, you don't have to walk through it? There are four open doors at the moment, but why walk through them? You can choose not to. And it could well be that God provides you with an extraordinary open door so that you might have the self-control and the trust in him to say no. Enough about guidance. I think the important thing here is to us to see how do you endure suffering while you wait. If I think about this for a moment, David believes that it's wrong to strike the Lord's anointed. How can he do that, though? How can he have the self-control to wait and not strike? Verse 11. He and Saul comes out of the cave. David follows, calls to Saul at a safe distance. Verse 11. See, my father... Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. Do you see what it is that enables David to do the right thing? To not touch the Lord's anointed. Do you see who he trusts to bring justice? Justice is not in David's hands. It's in God's hands. The kingdom is not in David's hands. It's in God's hands. And so he will wait and suffer as he waits for the kingdom. He entrusts himself 
to him who judges justly. See it there again in verse 15. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. He can do the right thing. He cannot retaliate because he trusts God for justice. And that's Jesus, isn't it? He's better than David. Uh, he never lied. He was never about to kill to take revenge. It says in the passage there on the back of the outline, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. How did he do that? Because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's exactly what we're to do. The people of God's king will suffer as well and sometimes it's because people are unjust towards us. Sometimes it's because they hate us because they hate Jesus. What are you to do when someone cuts in on you in the traffic? What are you to do when someone bullies or gossips about you at school or at work? How are you to respond when you're left out of things because you're a Christian? We're to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Do you do that? It's hard. Isn't it? it was hard for David. It was hard for Jesus. It's hard for us. What does God do to help us to be able to trust him as we suffer and to not retaliate because we trust him who judges justly. Well, I think it's really striking that he didn't leave David on his own. David is not some superhero. He needed help to trust God. And just before this extraordinary incident in chapter 24, God gives him someone. Chapter 23, verse 16. Jonathan is his best friend, but he hasn't seen him for years because it is just too dangerous. But somehow at this point... Jonathan gets to David. And do you see what it says, verse 16? Helped him, he helped him find strength in God. That's what David needed, strength in God. And how did Jonathan help him to do that? Was it just by being there? Was it just by putting his arm around him? Was it just by being a sympathetic listener? No, it says, verse 17, he said, don't be afraid. Can you see how ridiculous that is? David, my father the king with his 3,000 crack troops is out to kill you. But don't be afraid. How could you not be afraid at that point? Well, he goes on. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. This is not just wishful thinking. This is not just saying what David wants to hear at this point. This is what God has promised. He reminds David of the promises of God. That means he can wait and suffer and trust God 
so he doesn't need to retaliate. Do you see what we need to be able to suffer and trust God? We need a friend. A good friend who will speak the truth to us. Say a hard word like don't be afraid and remind us of God's promises. Do you have a friend like that who would speak to you like that? Are you a friend like that who would say a hard word and would remind others of God's promises. How are we to respond when we suffer? We're to wait to trust God and wait for him to judge. And the only way we're going to do that is by remembering God's promises. And we need each other to speak them to each other. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for David and that some of the time he got it right. In fact, some of the time he got it extraordinarily right because he trusted you to judge. We thank you that Jesus did that, that he bore our sin. He was a man of sorrows and he did not retaliate because he trusted you and waited for his kingdom. Father, we pray that we'd be people who trust you too, especially when people are unfair to us and cause us to suffer. And Father, we pray that we'd be like Jonathan, a good friend who speaks God's promises. And Father, we pray that in your mercy, you might give to each one of us a good friend who will strengthen us in God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.